This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. McCard carrying Basing at this point. Ben Alomar, Director of Sports Analytics at ESPN. You stood next to Big Poppy be like, he's just one of us, man. <laughs> That's kind of a big deal and shows you a lot about the randomness of sports. Rick Peterson, longtime pitching coach for the major leagues. This is Warden Moneyball's post-game podcast. This is Cade Massey, host of Wharton Moneyball, and you're listening to our podcast. We air live on Business Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 132, every Wednesday, 8 to 10 Eastern. Enjoy this week's show. We've got the whole crew in here for probably just the first half hour. Eric is going to slip away and do Eric Bradlow things for the rest of the show. Me, Adi, and Shane will be here for the duration. We have guests at the bottom of this hour and the top of the next hour in their usual slots. For the first half hour, open lines, open world of sports. Gentlemen, we haven't oh been boy. together. We have not been together in a couple of weeks. There have been some things going on. We've been doing some things. I'm curious what's caught your eye. Well, we usually defer to Eric, so let's hear what you got. Well, <laughs> just on the way to talking about the what's happened in football and the trades and everything, I just have to continue again to give a shout-out. So I, I said this two weeks ago. Um, there was a Swiss woman, Belinda Benchik who beat four top-seeded players in one tournament. So she played last night. She just beat the number one player in the world, Naomi Osaka. So she's now got five consecutive wins against top ten players, including being the numbers one, two, three, five, and nine oh, in the and, world. And where is she did in the she, ranking at this did point? Did she win the Australian? Is no, this... she didn't win the Australian, but she won the next tournament after that, like a Masters 1000 okay. series event. They must, be- they must track movements up and down the rankings, and she's going to have to probably set a record for like how no, but she here's, shoots no, but here's the problem. We, this is a good statistical issue. The ranking system in tennis is not based on who you beat. Tournaments have certain numbers of points. Uh, you get a certain mm-hmm. number of points. And so while her strength rating may go up, her elo, her elo will go up, dramatically. but her ranking won't go up unless it just depends how many points she ends up getting from a tournament. Well, and what what is the kind of rationale for doing it on a point system versus something like elo? So I can give you the only rationale, which is you want players to play certain events. Yeah. And so that's I the see. reason. It's, it's the You're trying to incentivize. They're correct. not after truth. In correct. We're after truth. Right. Well, they They're, leave the truth to the people who can handle it, like us, <laughs> well, this, and they this, try and incentivize people correct. to actually go well, to this tournaments. Re- this results in this current phenomenon we're observing with older statesmen-like players who only play certain numbers of tournaments. They tend to have lower rankings, even though we all know they're the best players. Mm-hmm. And, of course, just one last thing in tennis. The number one player in the world, Novak Djokovic, lost to, this is again, you get this mixture distribution. This is the first time in a long time I've seen it happen to Djokovic. He lost to Philip Kohlschreiber last night, a 35 year old player who's I've been watching him over the years he hadn't beaten Djokovic in 10 years but he had beaten him once other time he had never beaten a top five player in the world and Djokovic lost in straight sets to Cole Schreiber he said well he's injured I would have said that except he came back an hour later Djokovic and played doubles he rarely plays doubles and won that match and was very energetic and he was like cursing himself during the match I watched both matches he's like why didn't I play like this during singles what's your wow. attribution who knows? Old guys sometimes play like old guys. That's your attribute. That's, what, yeah. that's okay. what happens. And, and old guys sometimes play like young guys. They, so that he played an elder, someone older than he is, and they're played very well. So we, we do see that. It's the variance theory of age. Yeah. Eric Bradlow's variance theory, variance of, theory of age. Variance theory of age, exactly. Is that sometimes, and he just didn't have it. As a matter of fact, they asked Cole Schreiber after the match. They said, when did you think you could win? He said, after the second game of the match, I'm like, 
this doesn't look like Novak Djokovic on <laughs> the other right. side of the net. He's like, I can win this <laughs> no, can match. Win this. All right, so uh, so can we talk about old people? Not really old people. One of the things that we, one of our ongoing conversations about lengthening a career is taking time off. Yeah. So apropos taking time off, yeah. my hidden favorite football team is the Jets. I don't There's talk nothing about it. About so that. It's nothing that hidden. It's just it's nothing to talk about. There's well, just yeah, never I been mean, anything to say, right? For so you, many years, you don't years. get a lot of opportunities to advertise it. <laughs> I don't. And so they have they have just they have just signed Le'Veon Bell. Yeah, who took a year off. Yeah. This they is a little bit of excitement for for uh, this well, uh, they, New York team. They didn't just sign him. It's a it's a four year fifty two point five million thirty five of that's guaranteed. It's a record for running backs. Thirty five million dollar guaranteed money for a running. Well, back. the discussion that Adi and I were having on the way in this morning was. Let's imagine you wanted to have a great running back career. Like, maybe Le'Veon Bell's got it right and we've got it wrong. Maybe you should play for three or four years, take a year off, play another three or four years, take, take a year, year off, play another three or four years. Like, we were just I wondering. Mean, I, th- I, I feel like, like it would be hypocritical for us to slam somebody for taking essentially a sabbatical every few years. <laughs> right? That's That's that would be hypocritical. <laughs> no, no, but we were just wondering, could you imagine, like, let me ask, this, there's three possibilities, right? One is he's missed the year. He won't be the player he was. Yeah. Another possibility is he's the same player he was because he's added no more mileage. Mm-hmm. The third possibility is he's actually A better. better. And so the question is, which of those three do we believe is actually going to be true? But, but what, one of the things you said to me earlier was is that is that the money he he sacrificed for taking the year off is never coming back. Million. Never right. coming back. And I responded by saying, well, it is coming back if he has one extra year on his career. Mm-hmm. We don't really know that, so of course D- discounted appropriately. Discounted appropriately, right? Well, <laughs> that's true. And under, the, and under the count, and you're making the counterfactual that he wouldn't have played last year and that extra year too. Whatever you want to call the extra year, like right. maybe he would have played to age 32 regardless. No, no, and that's now, the premise. That's and the that's premise. the premise that most people go by is that he was never going to play past a certain what's, age. What's yeah. the sense on Adrian Peterson? So he's it happened much later in his his career, but it's one of the only other examples we have of a very high end running back taking kind of a four. We're taking a year off for some reason. Yeah. Well, I, I think Adrian Peterson is still a very effective back. He's going to be in the NFL this next year. I mean, no How one was the eight. Just remind me. He's now like remind 33 us. or 34. And yeah. in, 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 in running back years, that's grandpa. Yeah, no, oh, I mean, beyond he, grandpa, okay. probably the only his, his season last year with the Redskins, I think, was almost record breaking in terms of like the number of yards he got for somebody that age. And again, you notice back to my variance theory. He had probably half a dozen games where he looked like, wow, that's Adrian Peterson. And then he had the other eight to nine games, that's the old Adrian Peterson. Yeah. Eric, is, is this theory inspired by any chance on, by personal reflection or observation? No. The only I see I knew you'd or, go there. Or data. <laughs> the only well, I will say the following. Um I do believe that's true, except when you never had that great a peak, it's hard to know if the variance is coming <laughs> yeah. from, you know, yeah. But but for elite athletes, I can imagine that they still have elite periods, but it's fleeting. Mm-hmm. And it just doesn't happen all the time. Or on demand would be another way to so say it. So would it be a decent way to estimate this by just looking at in within game or inter game variance, that would be a good. That would I don't, be think, a good I don't start. think we've ever just checked that kind of thing. We're talking about it, but it's, well, it's, it's, it's hard, interesting it's, it's, to define in different yeah. sports. Yeah, well, yeah football. Be, I think it'd be very difficult just because there's so much variation due to like you strategy. know opposition yep. strategy mm-hmm. scheme and all that type of stuff. But well, yeah, maybe, I, maybe in one thing you could do would be the following. You know, one of the metrics we've recently heard for football for quarterbacks is like expected yards given where everybody is on the field. Let's imagine you could compute such a measure for different sports, mm-hmm. and now all of a sudden 
sudden you say, it's not about Adrian Peterson getting 100 yards. Given the hole and everything else, he should have gotten 130 in the game, but he only got 100 yards. Or, you know, so maybe there's a way to, using, you know, motion tracking well, data in, in and everything baseball, else. we have the, the stat cast information. Yeah, so you, you could do that. how hard you hit it, and you, instead of looking at what you actually did, we look at how hard you hit it and where you hit it and what angle. Yeah, these things are happening. I don't think, um, I mean, the problem with this, much, much, much of this data is very, very recent, so you really can't go back but I think far. But I think to Shane's point, I mean, to Kay's point, I agree. It's the variance of something. Mm-hmm. I'm not exactly sure exactly what that something hey, is. We're only five years into the show. Keep on working on it, Eric. Could we'll, be explosive we're, we're, we're five. That's, that's, Okay, what what expectations do you guys have, or what reactions do you have to the Odell Beckham oh. trade? So this was the biggest news in a while, and one of the bigger trades. Well, with my initial reaction is that the Giants got fleeced. I think they. Wait, I think the Browns got a great deal. No, consensus. well, let's let's compare this. Wait, wait. Well, just really? wait, 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 wait. I want to take the other side fill for it a out, second. Fill it out sure. first. So Odell Beckham arguably the top receiver in the league, one of the top two or three easily, at presumably the prime of his career, traded by the Giants to the Browns for two of their picks this year, number one and number three, their first and third rounds, which are like a mid-round picks, Yep. Um, plus a, 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 pep, a Jabril Peppers. Peppers. He's, a, he's a starter, right? He's, he's a, a starter. Safety. Yes. Uh, Yes. Yeah, he, yeah, he is. I mean, he's, hybrid, kind of current, uh, modern safety. Now, was, was you, Odell, had you had, had you just just kind of as a information for the discussion? Had you ever heard of Jabril Peppers? No, no. no. I mean, that, but, I, but, I, but, I, but, I point I, that I, only only I know, to sort of make a point I, yeah. I, I, to make a point about the kind of relative prominence of this player going. Can, can one, one more piece of data though? Real, is real is Odell Beckham Jr. about ready to leave? I mean, is he yes. one year on his contract? Yes. No, he was, no, he was just right. signed to an extension yeah. last summer. Okay. He's All got right. like three or this four years. One of the things that's so hard to understand is that the Giants could have just kept him around for this last year by franchising him, but instead they gave him this big extension. Mm-hmm. And now they move him. So there's there's some inconsistency in their, yeah. in their decision well, making. So how do you compare that to the Antonio Brown deal? They got, what, a third and a fifth rounder for him? That's yes. what the st- so, yeah, but I'm, that's but that's not the right comparison. Antonio why? Brown f- completely forced them. The Steelers had yeah. no leverage whatsoever. That's you can't. I mean, take I, I, I mean no, that's but no, no, if you're saying the Giants himself actually, about as hard to trade as possible. I understand that, but I don't think the Giants got fleeced at all. Jabril really? Peppers is a starter. You got a first round pick, a third round pick, and a starter for Odell Beckham, who I, was disgruntled. He didn't want to be on the team. He didn't force a trade, but he didn't want to be on the team anymore. Not they, a, well. I mean, he certainly was not like making. Uh, he was not making noise the way Antonio Brown was by any extent. I mean, and, and Odell Beckham Jr. Even when in his disgruntled state, I mean, it seemed like he was not particularly pleased with how the Giants were playing last year. Or some of the decision making they've done, but I mean, he still played just, and played well. Well, let me he ask. Let, let me ask game. Cade since, since Cade did a lot of research on this. Let's forget it's Odell Beckham Jr. for a second. Let's imagine the Giants this year had said to another team, "We'll give you the 17 pick, which is what they traded, the a third rounder, and Jabril Peppers." How high could they have gotten in the draft by trading that bundle of assets? And then let's start saying, could, is Odell Beckham Jr., how fleeced did they so, get? So, I think they could, what Eric's trying to do is reduce the dimensionality. No, so now we're going to make it one yeah. player against one player. and and No so matter what, what, and I, I think no matter what, I mean, obviously that would get you very high very up. Very high like, up. Like in the top five picks, that's probably. Yes, that's right. And you'd be lucky to get Odell Beckham I'm Jr. Not, with I'm, the top I'm five I'm not pick. disagreeing with you, Shane, but I'm it's, just saying. My, yeah, I'm no, not disagreeing that, with you. I, I agree. But you didn't get, you, you, to say you got fleeced, I believe you could get to the top five through that package. Easily. 
easily. And now, so you're right. But no, but right. I, you got to emphasize the last thing that Shane said. Odell Beckham Jr. is not a draft pick. He's a proven superstar. Right. Nobody in the draft is a pro- proven superstar. That, yeah. is, that yeah. is not so number that, one that, pick. That's, that's, that's that's way above body, number one. Body, I'm yeah, not I disagreeing mean, with man. you. I'm just commenting on the comment that yeah. other people way, have made that got fleeced. It's and, a good and, way to simplify the comparison. Yeah, and Eric's excellent framing of this issue makes me back off the word fleeced. I mean, I, I guess. But, 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 but I paying, do think Cleveland got a great deal on this. But, but part of the fleecing is the fact that they're paying $20 million of his compensation for the next couple of years so the, yeah. the giants are yeah oh now oh god he, he's got he's got like league market compensation which is in now it's in the low 20s or something for the top wide receivers except the browns are only having to pay i don't know 15 16 17 a year for that and the rest of the giants are picking up because of this guarantee the other thing of course is you also have to look at where the t- different teams are just i'm not saying that equalizes it but the Giants had already given up their third-round draft pick through a compensatory pick. They're trying to rebuild, if you'd like, and stockpile. If you look at what the Browns have done, besides last year getting Nick Chubb and Baker Mayfield, they also just traded for Jarvis Landry. I mean, Baker Mayfield yeah. is now throwing to Odell Beckham Jr. and Jarvis no, Landry. I, 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 they And remember, they went, I think it was, I'll make it up, 7-8-1 and one or something last yeah, year. Yeah. They're a team, they've got to believe... We can win now. No, so I'm I mean, just they, saying, they, I they, like they, they, they must Grand be, I, I, I would say, I, they, they're, I, they're the they favorite from that division. For that division Wait, Matt point. put in our thing here. It goes Chiefs, Patriot, Rams, Saints, Bears, Browns. Yeah, and, and I mean, <laughs> just sort of in, in, in kind of like coming yep. back to kind of the Giants' decision making and some of the inconsistency in that, it's not just that they extend Beckham and then trade him after one year. It's that if you really are going into this rebuilding mode, which they appear to now be signaling they are, why Barkley last year? Why did yeah. they take Saquon Barkley? They're going to waste us that, yeah. you know, and the we, know running backs, is, right. we know running backs don't have the longest short, half life. Yep. They're going to waste this guy's, the prime of this guy's career on a rebuilding team. Uh, fantastic point. Uh, the, the inconsistency, the lack of a philosophy, um, this is a hallmark that. of poorly run and therefore probably poorly owned professional franchise you may well see by the way the giants are going to try to move up in the draft you may well see them packaged now that they've obviously got two first rounders you may see them try to move up in the draft and their dealing might be done may not be done yeah i agree with you for quarterback eric Yes. Or, yeah. or, or if yes. they really have, in this offseason, changed their philosophy into a rebuilding mode, is Barkley suddenly available? Because let's... Right. Well, let's also... Yeah. I, I, that would be shocking. I, it, I doubt that they're, they're that consistent philosophically. They, right. they won't have changed philosophically because they're not capable of holding a single philosophy for any period of time. So right. what do you think of... Uh, so let's just put this hypothetical. Barkley is now available. He was a second round... Uh, the number pick, two Number pick. two number pick. First round number two pick. We've had a, a, a good time to look at him. He's higher than that now, right? Because he's, be, he's, he's, oh, yeah. he's proven. He's proven. Oh yeah. Oh no. He's so. If you were to put him would, on the market, you can get would, the number would get one a, pick. I mean, multiple get, I mean, number ones. Yes. But, yeah. but you. But you have to have a team that is willing to invest that heavily in a running back. And the consensus these days, not fully held, but mm-hmm. widely held, is that running backs aren't worth that kind of investment. With the game these days, that rushing just doesn't give you that much of an advantage. Yeah, though, I mean, I I, I could counter on it, but I think Barkley is kind of, you know, at Destruction. least showed the potential to be like a generational talent at that position. By the way, is the belief, so. is the belief that, that where the Giants are currently sitting, Kate, at number six, that Haskins won't be around at number six for them to draft? I think that's a fair—that's not a bad over-under. I mean, I, it's I, right I, at the yeah, fence, these, right? By the way, these things are dynamic as hell. Running back, I mean, quarterbacks tend to just kind of 
steadily float up the board in the spring toward the draft. And so I think maybe – but Haskins real close to where Haskins would be expected to go. Yeah, so they've got to be hoping that you know maybe they can package – I'm making it up at that 17. But if they package their six in that third rounder they just have, maybe they move up to three or four, which they're trying to get Haskins. Because that's is the Haskins rumor. worth it? I mean, is or, he or, a generational or, quarterback? No. 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 Not even close. No. no. <laughs> but, I mean, you no. know, or, or they could decide to kind of, you know, to, to not – Go for uh, Kyler Murray. Exactly. Or, 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 or one more season, presumably not a very good performance out of Eli, and then they go for a quarterback the next year. You mean Tank? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Tank, oh, so, for, so what tank about, for Tua or whatever what, what, we would call it. What about the Browns? My reaction to the Browns is that this feels like like second generation money. Like these guys inherited all these picks and they and they're just they're just blowing through. They're buying a lake mm-hmm. house, you know, they're vacationing big. <laughs> they're just blowing yeah. through the wealth that was accumulated by a previous generation of management there. And it's fun and exciting. It's a lot of fun, but, but they not a plan. they better convert with what they're doing yeah. now because one, they're burning through the pantry. Yeah. And also the guys running the shop now have never demonstrated good pantry management. So th- I don't have any confidence that they're going to regenerate these kinds of assets. Do you do you make the same analogy, Cade, right now with what the Sixers have done, which is Josh Harris came Correct. out, the owner, very clearly and said, you know, we're now in a win now. Mm-hmm. We've given up a lot of the assets that Sam Hankey and others built for us. I mean, they made lots of trades. The Sixers don't have, I mean, the Celtics, as we've talked about, they're a team that not only has talent right now, but... They're the ones with actually a treasure trove of draft picks coming up, some from the from the Sixers. The Sixers don't have as I mean, they're not stock full of draft picks anymore. Considering they how used, many years no. we had to suffer, correct? What happened to all that? Well, that, that it's pantry. called Joel Embiid. It's yeah. called Ben Simmons, yeah. and we trade and we traded some, and that allowed us to get Tobias Harris and Jimmy Butler. Yeah, and, so- I, and I mean, when you have this sort of like, I mean. I guess they've made the decision, or as an organization, or maybe maybe I'm making you know reading too much into them actually having a coherent plan. They've made the decision that you know they have this, they have the current talent to go for it now. This is their opportunity. And similarly, Cleveland. I mean, you know, I, I they clearly have bought into Baker Mayfield. They think he's the real deal, and they're like, well, now well, we have to take advantage of this guy's window on his rookie deal. Well, let's pay attention to that window. The Steelers right now aren't going to be what they were. No yep. Le'Veon Bell, no Antonio Brown. We know that. And Roethlisberger's old. The Ravens, the Ravens are Lamar uncertain. Jackson's their starting uncertain. quarterback. It's very uncertain. There's no reason. Matter of fact, I agree. They should be the favorite in that division. Yeah, yeah and, and let's acknowledge that there is a time and place to pile some to push some chips in. Yeah. So you can't. You, you shouldn't play for the future and play prudent every year. Probably more years than not. You can't do the Dan Snyder thing every year. Move up in the draft every year. Give away draft capital. You got to. You've got to balance it. So let's acknowledge that. But you, you want to be, I think you want to be a team like the Celtics who've demonstrated an ability to, to strike that balance. And they're good at accumulating picks and managing their portfolio picks, but they're also good at seeing their moments and trading up and, and, making, and making a play for it. And there are teams out there, there are very few football teams out there that have demonstrated their ability to do both of those well, things. Well, the other, the other big signing that I think a lot of you guys, I, which, I don't know if you call this the third premier one, but our guy. What do you think about Nick Foles going to yeah. the Jaguars yeah. for four years? Yeah. That seemed, I mean, he converted. Well, I, he, I'm uncool. <laughs> cashed I, in. It, it, is he it, better it, than Bortles? Yes. Yeah. Oh my God. Oh yeah. No, I mean, I, I think, I think that, I think Jacksonville is getting a better, uh, has upgraded their quarterback at. That price seemed kind of high for me because I wasn't. It wasn't clear to me who. How much they is were guaranteed? Fifty million for 50, that. Eighty-eight like, million dollar contract. You know, but how many years? Four years. 
That doesn't bother me. Yeah, the four years means well. He's a, he's another one. I don't think it relates as much to quarterbacks, but he's not, he's thirty, but he's a young thirty. I mean, how much has he right, really he, played? He really I mean, yet. he's got like four years of games by age thirty. He hasn't been I mean, crushed. Nick, Nick Foles has turned me into a believer. I mean, I I, 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 I think I think he's I think he's a real upgrade for them. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Bortles. The it, stats don't show that, by the way. But yeah, I, I know. But but, the, but the, it's, I had this interesting experience with Bortles because that was the one year in the draft that that we did some analytics for an organization that had really good data coming out of college. And we were just helping them think about methodologically how you look at how you use these data, and they blinded us to the to the to the identity of the QBs, but you could kind of suss it out over time, and that, and so it's just look it's pretty anecdotal because there's one roster one crop of QBs, but Bortles was one of those guys he t- was talked about a lot by the by the by in the media, and he just didn't look good using all the best you know analyses we could bring and uh, and finer detail of college data than people have worked with before. Portals did not bear out well in that. And so, I've, I mean, you, you hate to pull against a guy, but you kind of always want to be right. You, know, you yeah. kind of want it. So let me ask you about, about Nick Foles. So I think on paper, statistically, he's never been a superstar. Correct. By any measure. His numbers aren't better than Bortles. He, knows, and, he and was also a superstar say, for six weeks. Uh, yeah, okay, I was good. Yeah. I, mean, <laughs> I mean, I would say two he's playoff years in a row, he was a superstar. But, you know, even when you watched it, I mean, I mean and listen, I, I guess I don't have football eyes that are particularly advanced. And he would everything seemed to be going right for the Eagles. But when I was just watching him, it almost seemed like he was just sort of thumping into the right thing. And I don't know <laughs> ah. whether that is nonsense or or and if the data is saying one okay, thing and my eyes are saying. Okay, here's uh, how different is that from Eli Manning's two t- two Super Bowls? Oh my, Not so different. I right? think it's very similar. Uh, very how, similar. How conversations give me PTSD, guys. <laughs> how different is it from Jay Cutler when Jay Cutler was, had a few good games? I mean, he had a career. Yeah. But anytime I watch Jay Cutler, I feel like he's there, just throwing. I know, but it was a little bit different, though. Remember, in the Super Bowl against the Patriots, Nick Foles, they never punted. They put up 40-something yes. points. The Giants, at least the first I mean, they won because of the defense. They held New England. I mean, it wasn't because Eli Manning threw for 500 yards and threw for five touchdowns. What was the final of the game? 17-14, right? Didn't yeah. Plaxico Burris right. catch that touchdown pass? Didn't that make it 17-14 or 21-17? It was very, it was, it was very different. It, it wasn't. It's a, it's a good global, they were, it's it was, good global point, but about the, I mean, he still gets lauded. I mean, probably, no, 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 but I'm saying the defense won I, that Super sure, Bowl. Sure, I hear you, but he still gets too much credit. For what happened there, despite what seemed like I don't know. I mean, he threw some beautiful balls in these games, but I mean, he got really. I'm lucky. just saying, Nick Foles' performance in his Super Bowl was much better than no, Eli Manning's performance. This is the big uncertainty: is that we do not know how much. Because, you know, Nick Foles was essentially a journeyman quarterback before his second tenure with his Eagles, and all of a sudden he. Was looked like a superstar. He didn't look like it. He he uh, he he won the Super Bowl and he so played very. well. I mean, let me give you. Let me let me. He just looks like Sebastian. He won like to me. five. It's been a baseball games. analogy. He looks like a. He just when I watch Sebastia pitch and he wins games, right? You're like, what is going on out there? The guy can't throw 90 miles an hour. You know, he just okay. Hold, painting but, oh, that's, the, but hold, but that's very, that seems like a very important distinction to draw. I, I would have thought. You, here's where. I, Sabathia's not going to get away with being lucky as a pitcher for as many, you know, 35 years that guy's been pitching. No, he, he was a fantastic pitcher. No, there's no doubt. Okay, so, yeah, so with, say, yeah, no, no, for, for 10 years, he let was me, one of the best pitchers in the league. Let me try a characterization of Foles. So, one, we have to recognize that he was matched to a system that suited him really well. And they built a system around yep. him kind of, kind of both, in both directions. Well, so good coaches do. You, well, and, and not all of them, right? So, hopefully Jacksonville's going to do something when he goes Actually, down that's there. what good coaches I know, do. I know. But, right. Um 
but the other thing is he's a guy who's who's who throws the ball and quarter. This is a dimension that quarterbacks really vary on. Are you willing? Or one, can you throw a deeper ball, for example? But are you also willing to throw it? Are you willing to take those chances? And you're just going to end up with some higher variance outcomes. And and increasingly, people are characterizing quarterbacks along these dimensions and saying, look, you can take the safer throw and you can look better statistically as a result. There may be value, even if it in, in, introduces some variance, there may be value in just a willingness to throw I, the ball. It goes the other way also. You're looking at it as a positive because he's, he takes chances, and, and but it goes the other way and because then you reflect on someone who has done very well over a shorter period of time and say, well, this is someone who's taken chances, and he just got the, the no, die rolls going away. He- 100% agreed. So that I think this is once you see that that's kind of his style, you have to recognize you're going to over-attribute Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Over over credit him essentially when things go well because he's basically rolling dice and and but and, and you're going to hit him too hard whenever things don't go well. That's but, right. But there's there's kind of a dynamic consequence here of a quarterback who can who can stress defenses that way. And this is really no, no one's capturing this part. Right. Of I'm it. pretty yeah. sure the stats would bear out that Nick Foles throws the ball downfield more so than Carson Wentz. And I observed sure. this last year with the Buccaneers when when Fitz Magic, oh, the reason looked... why the receivers loved him, Deshaun Jackson loved him, but hates playing for Jameis Winston, is that Fitzpatrick is more than willing to throw the ball <laughs> down the field, and Winston is not. Well, wide yeah. receivers love that. I suppose. That wide receivers. Yeah. That's why Deshaun Jackson wanted out of there. He's like, I need a guy who can throw the ball down the it's field. One, it's one He's of the coming back that... to the Eagles. Yeah, yeah. That, and I, we, we kind that's of another contract. We got distracted by all the other <laughs> things happening, but I think that's one of the biggest gets of the offseason. No, and Carson Wentz Deshaun will Jackson. throw down the field. Right? He's got a terrific Everybody arm. Everybody right? will, yeah. but the, the question is how much you do. And it's one of, one of the, the people noticed at some point that interceptions in college aren't necessarily the worst thing in the world because it shows a willingness. To throw the ball, and you I need like to what Kate's saying because to mine, you know, when I watch the Eagles under Wentz versus Foles, that's the one difference. If I had to say, I would notice Foles just looks at any point in time he's willing to throw it long down the field, and Wentz, I feel, I don't know if it's because of his injury or maybe just the style of quarterback he is. He's not. I don't get the sense that he loves the deep ball. And so I agree with you. I think that's a big difference. It raises the question of like, what's the? There's a there's a there's an optimal amount of risk taking in an offense. And I don't know how even to answer that question, but I, I know that there is an optimal amount. It's higher than zero. And it could be that the incentives are such that, that quarterbacks are often a little too risk-averse. It's it possible. also, it, it, in my mind, if you throw interceptions, which is the real reason why they don't want to take chances, on deep balls, they're not as damaging. That's right. It's not. It's like a punt. A punt I mean, I, th- I think there's more yeah. than that. The other thing with deep balls is you actually have to like be hold the ball in the pocket for a longer period of time in order to throw a deep That's ball. Right. And so some quarterbacks who have been recently injured and don't want to take a hit that, yeah. as much aren't going to be throwing the deep ball as well. But notice that this is a feature of a quarterback that changes what the defense can do. So the defense has to has to treat them differently. Mm-hmm. And it opens up other possibilities. If a guy is only going to throw short, if he's only going to take the risk averse throws, then it gives the defense more flexibility. That's just, why, by the way, just to compliment, to take away your PTSD for a moment, that's why we have to compliment Tom Brady. Because when you actually watch it, they're not, he's not throwing the deep ball all the time. As a matter of fact, he looks hesitant at this point in his career to throw, to stand in there. I'm not saying he's not going to stand in there, but he's throwing, if he throws a ball over 15 yards, it's a route in the middle. It's rarely a deep corner mm-hmm. throw, possibly because yeah. he may know I don't quite have the arm strength anymore to actually make the precise deep corner throw. 
and to be as great as he is when everybody knows essentially everything's going to happen 20 yards from the line of scrimmage in yeah, is and, just remarkable. So, and, and again, it's it, we don't know how much that is sort of Brady's decision-making or Brady's arm versus the fact that he hasn't really had kind of that outside well, threat that's a, that's for like a few years as well. A, a that's technical good question, is this data collected? Yes. So I can I can open up the ESPN or whatever and see what fraction of your balls are deep or you your distribution can. of... You can look at not only passes that are thrown deep, but obviously average yards per completion. All that of I that, see. That, I know, but yeah. all of that data, you can absolutely get the data on the length of throws. And, and there's, there's, a, there's nice, nice analysis now, including our, our friend Josh Hermsmeyer, on, on depth of uh, completion as a function of depth of attempt. Yeah, and so the analysis it's like is really that kind of curve or whatever. Yeah, and so like, of course it goes down, but then you can really evaluate guys who can. It's great that balls. you bring that up because I've heard now when people are evaluating college players coming out, that's one of the top statistics they're looking at is not completion percentage, but by depth of throw. Yeah, it's called adjusted. Yeah, yeah some, some, something like that. So let me ask you a question. So going back to the Odell Beckham trade, and this is just as we roll into the to the commercial break here. It's, we, we do a bad job of valuing players by position because we typically take the average. And so if we go out and say, how much is a, a wide receiver worth? How much is a quarterback worth? We can look at, you know, maybe injuries help us see how much a player's worth, how much the line moves, how much the expected performance moves. But that's the average. We, it's much more complicated to say, okay, in the right tail of the distribution, yeah. the very best players, they're worth a different amount. One, it's a smaller sample. You have to model these things. So let me just ask you without, you know, just if you thought about it, Kind of in, from first principles, what would you expect? How much, how much better would you expect the best receiver or two or three in the league to be than the average receiver? Like, what do you think that in terms of points looks? per game? Yeah. So if the average, if receivers on average don't actually add that, you lose a receiver on average, it doesn't really move your expected performance around much, if any. But well, then you're telling but us the, the right tail, but the right tail. Like I'm trying to get some sense of how many points per game did the Browns just improve themselves by acquiring this guy? Because let's take him as the best receiver in the game or the second best receiver. Right, can we put some scale on this? So what would a win be? So if you put if you try to think about it, wins above replacement, how many points across the entire season must you add to to get one to get extra win. one extra win for your team? It's a very appropriate question. I don't have an automatic answer. Yeah, I can guess at it because we know the standard like deviation two, is about twelve and a half points. One. So you would need at least to add, one. I would argue, fifteen points or so to yeah, produce so a win. One, one. So one. If we're going to think of the per game, it would be about performance one. per game. It's yep. about one. one. Yeah. So I would argue that's probably the upper end of what a, a exceptional wide receiver would bring is about yeah. a win. Because I would argue a, a top quarterback would probably bring two to three wins, maybe. How, the, what the are biggest. you arguing this from? I'm asking you to argue from a statistical thing about the distribution. And you're you're coming at it from which is fine. You're coming at it from a different perspective than I expected you to. But um, I'm just wondering, you know, I'm just thinking what what is the upper end? I'm looking. I mean, at the, are, the, are the, you? Know, I, I, I guess are, are you sort of? Uh, and also, I mean, we need information on sort of like how many of those wide receivers or how many of those quarterbacks exist. I don't know if right? I had if that's, I had to guess just quickly answering Kate's question. Just I'm just, I, just, I, I know I, I would have said if you would, if you just asked the question, how many extra points per game is Odell Beckham worth to the Cleveland Browns? My guess is. Everybody in this room would have said somewhere between three to five points. No. I I would would have, have, no. Per game. I would have per gone no. more. I would have, I would have, I would have backed you exactly out the way three. I did it. One you would have three. said one to three. And I'm saying I would have said, three to five is monstrous. That's, that's gigantic. Yeah, no, no, no. Um, I would have said three to five. I, I, so I, 
so by the way, it looks like the Action Network, these guys are a new organization that are kind of popularizing betting information, are saying that it's one to one and a half points on a point spread. Um, there it is. Star, okay, well, there it is. There we go. But, that, but, we, but notice how he came up with that no, going but, backwards. Hold on. Betting market, this is a place where I don't take that as gospel. Betting markets, okay. because they're influenced by people like Eric Stegman But it's not right triple miscalibrated. It's not, it's not four and a half if they're no, saying one I, to one and a I, half. That's, I, it gives yeah. us a sense. Yeah. I, I think the key is having some sense of what the, the extremity is worth. The, yeah. the, what are the very best guys worth relative to different places in the distribution? I like using the betting market. <laughs> oh, well, well, it's good. It's good in many circumstances, but it's not perfect. We are just out of our open line segment. We're rolling into guest segments. We are delighted in this half hour to welcome into the studio, no less, Andrew Castle and Jake Flancer. Andrew, Jake, good morning to you. Good morning. good morning. Andrew and Jake are sophomores here at the University of Pennsylvania. We're talking to them because they were finalists in the NFL's first ever Big Data Bowl. So if you don't know what the Big Data Bowl is, that's one of the reasons we have them in here to talk with us about that contest. It's something the NFL ran using their next generation stats as a way to kind of jumpstart the use of next generation stats. So Andrew and Jake, you guys jumped into this. I happen to know, jumped in last minute with kind of low expectations. Even your advisor, Audie Weiner there had, yeah. you know, I'd say low, modest, modest, modest. not because of who you are, fellas, but because you kind of decided at the last minute to do this. So give us a little sense of... And I think to these old timers, it's kind of intimidating to just jump into some giant data set like this at the last minute and feel like you could do something. Totally, totally, totally. So let me try to set the scene kind of briefly, and y'all can correct me wh- where where I might have it wrong. But next generation stats, this is motion tracking for football. Other sports, the invasion sports, if you will, soccer, basketball, hockey, they've been using motion tracking for a while. The NFL has been a little slow on this. They've been gathering it for a while. They've been reluctant to share it with the teams. They Still gave, reluctant. They are, they're very reluctant to share it outside, but they were even reluctant to share it with teams. For a while, they shared only the team's specific data. They didn't share the opponents. So they had a season worth of data on their own players, but not their opponents. And this past year, they started sharing it more fully. Um, they did this interesting thing. They hired Michael Lopez, a friend of our show, from Skidmore, who's a stats prof and a, and a blogger and a, and a fantastic sports analyst as a full-time guy to kind of run up their their statistics efforts. So he's there to promote the use of these data within the teams, to educate teams, but also to some extent work with media and, and, and all of that. And they come up with this idea to do this contest. We're going to make some data available, which is you know enticing and delicious to the community that's never had this. Extraordinary we're, data, we're gonna way. We're going to make these motion tracking data available, and we're going to do kind of a hackathon. We're going to ask anybody who wants to sign up, um, take a look at these data and tell us what they see. They provided some structure. I'm going to hear the structure from you. But my understanding is they provided something like six games from the 2018 season, only six games worth of data. And that uh, – was it more than that? Yeah. yeah. Uh, six, six weeks of data. Six, oh, six, yeah. I, mean, I don't mean six games. I meant yeah. six weeks. Great. We so many, many, many more than six games. Six weeks of data. My understanding is something like 1,800 teams signed up and then – you know, something less than 10% actually submitted, but there was a lot of initial interest. One of the reasons they dropped off probably is because I assume the data is formidable. Yeah, yeah. F- formidable is, is a great word. So we want to hear your story, like how you decided to jump in, because they, they, they also did awful timing for, for those yeah, of for, us in on the On our side world. of it, 
we we heard about the contest during break, Christmas break, Christmas break, yes. and we don't all take off during Christmas break. And we were always sending emails back and forth to each other saying, "Can we get a team to represent?" And I, have, of course, knew of you of our group and our, our sports seminar. I'm like, it's not going to be possible. Right? They're not coming back until three days before the deadline. There's right. just no way we're going to do it. Right. So you guys decided to jump in. Let's hear a little bit of your story on how and when you decided to jump in, and what were your impressions when you did so. Yeah, so this came on our radar over winter break. Our teammate Jack Sosla sent us a message saying, hey, jump in on this with me. So uh, can, real quickly, can you just run down? You guys are two of a four-person team. Can you give us the other two people as well? Yeah, the other two people are Jack Soslo, who's a senior in Wharton, and also Eric Dong, who's a senior in engineering. Okay. And my, there's a there's a football player bouncing around this team, or is he just an advisor? That's Jack. That is, yeah, Jack, Jack is, is a, the kicker on the Penn football team. Got it, got it. Okay. All right. All right, so uh, yeah, it popped on our radar over break, but we really didn't end up doing anything until we got back to comp- campus. Uh, and like Professor Weiner said, we had about three days really to get the meat of the project done. Um, That's insane because yeah. this isn't just running a regression. No, it's not. It's absolutely not. Um, so it was a fairly intense weekend. Uh, we stayed up pretty late, uh, <laughs> getting a lot of work done. Um, but it came together pretty well. Um, there are a lot of things I think we could have done better and would have liked to do with more time. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think given the time that we put into it, we're pretty happy with the result. Why did y'all decide to do this thing in general and especially given the circumstances? I think just because this is the first time this data was available, it's just you like it kind of felt like we needed to as like public interest in sports analytics. Like It's kind of like our job to look into tracking data as soon as it's made available. That's mighty responsible. Civic minded yeah. of you there. Well, you know, they, they, they also have self-interest. <laughs> Heroes yeah. come in many yeah. form, forms. <laughs> and this is one of them. So they, the, the, the league didn't just throw the data available and say, tell us what you find. They framed the discussion in some way. So tell us what the questions were, the prompts, or the choices were. Yeah, so there are three questions. The one that we ended up settling on was uh, trying to optimize receiver routes. And that's a really, really difficult problem. Um, so it, it's pretty challenging. And I, I Optimize actually, receiver route. Yes. Yeah. So they, they want to know, based on what these guys do when they run down the field, are there some configurations that are more effective than others? That's yeah. essentially the, the question. That was the question. That okay. Put, so. okay. So that was the question. Everyone answered the same uh, question. There were two other questions. Um, one of them was formulating a rule change. I don't actually remember the first one. It oh, was, it was uh, speed. speed. So do something with player speed beyond just given speed. So look at which players are fastest in certain situations. And how they wear out, yeah. whether okay. how they accelerate. Okay. So real quickly, let me jump ahead and we'll come back. You eventually do so well in this contest that you got invited to Indianapolis to present as finalists. Did everybody present on the same topic or did people present on different questions? I'd say the vast, vast majority were the receiver route topic. Okay. There was one there focusing on the rule change topic. Okay. And no one did the speed. One was on speed as well. One one, the, yeah, a lot of the receiver ones incorporated speed. some speed things, too. Okay. Uh, it, it ended up being a bit more nebulous by mm-hmm. the time we got there. People okay. were they're, they're, super locked in. There were actually, two, oh, there were okay. actually two divisions. There was an open division, which is for anyone. And then there was the student division. And I actually miscalibrated. I thought the student division was was uh, undergraduates and down. And the open division was graduate students and up. Turned out that student division was graduate students and down and open was anyone and these guys had to come the finalists were all graduate students except for I guess there there were two teams for they were undergrads two teams that were undergrads and and it was like there were eight finalists that presented four in the open division and four in the okay so four in the student division undergrad and grad and you guys made it and there were clearly over a hundred probably submissions so really really cool what did you do to, to answer this question 
So I guess big picture, we looked at all of the receiver routes. We had to do a lot of data cleaning to get them into a form that we thought was workable. And then once we had all of the route XY data, we did a bunch of different clustering techniques to try to figure out unsupervised clustering techniques to try to figure out which routes are ran most often, and then using those route classifications, figuring out which combinations are most successful. Okay, so I, I, from, I saw you present, I don't know, at the halfway point or something, yeah. your work, and all of the focus at the time was this first stage. You, you ultimately want to know like which are most advantageous, but first you have to know what they are. You have to have some way... You have to way, define somehow yes. what a route route is it and, even is, right? Algorithmically, yeah. right? It has to completely scale. You have to be able to automatically just run the program and have it tell you what the route combination is. Well, there's, there's is. actually two ways to do this, and one way to do it is the way that their students chose, which is the only way that was available available to them with the time constraint they had, which is what, what Jay called unsupervised, which is no labels, just let the computer try to sort the routes into different groups. Right. And this is what is done in, in, in image detection. This is the grand uh, jewel of machine learning is to basically take stuff that's unlabeled and, and find all the different components. And that's what they did here. The alternative way is to do what's called supervised, which means have human beings go in and look at the routes and label them and then build a machine learning algorithm or a statistical model that labels them, labels all of them. Yeah. So you want the, you want the, the people who, the experts are whatever to label a subset and the machine learning can can, can learn from that essentially and then apply it to the others now you you could imagine in football that would be an easy way to go because i mean a guy who knows football can just say curl slant post bam 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 and you'd be done he'd be done in 30 minutes right and you'd have your sample and then you could run the, and then and then your machine learning would would reach its understanding more quickly you didn't have that available to you partly because of time um, but you know this unsupervised thing is an important thing. It's actually more impressive to do it via via unsupervised, right? And I mean, it allows you to sort of like also potentially detect kind of unconventional things. Like there could be certain routes that are not like necessarily you know that don't fit into the kind of classical football knowledge base, right? That sure. that this algorithm sure. could produce. So I can imagine there's a real trade-off there because you can get you could see things you think are different but aren't different, and that's where you miss the expert. But then you could discover things that the experts don't know or didn't even think about or just happened to forget that morning. That's pretty neat little... Yeah, and I don't, I don't know if that kind of popped out of your actual analysis, whether you saw a lot of outlying routes and whether you sort of felt like those outlying routes were like noise versus some kind of new scheme that hadn't been seen before. Yeah, so that's actually exactly what happened when we look at the routes. So remember, we're trying to turn all this coordinate data into a route. and But for most of the route, a lot of these routes look really similar, right? Mm-hmm. You go out, and then maybe you hook a different direction. <laughs> but when you're trying to cluster, the clustering thinks, oh, that's a pretty similar route. They both go out the same way. Right. So we had to kind of play with a whole bunch of different techniques to try and cluster that into a route that's actually different. Okay, here's, That was really hard. Here's, a, here's an exam question, and it's different than typical Audi Weiner statistics exam question. Describe for our audience what you mean by cluster. All right. So we're basically trying to come up with a set of different routes that reduce like best represents the whole whole group of routes so right it's it's like you're you're coming you're finding the route that is closest to a bunch of other routes okay well you actually use the words yourself when you give them names yeah that's the way i would probably describe it so given observations for routes um naming them in Similar groupings. I think okay, so you, you 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 basically want to partition the entire population yeah. into into groups that are similar within themselves and distinct across. 
Yes. And, and you can ask the system to do that. You can build a statistical methodology to do that. So there might be you're gonna, how many how many plays did you have in your data just to give it a sense of this? Uh, using passing plays, I want to say six to seven thousand. Okay, six or seven thousand plays. Uh, how many? How many? On average, how many receivers were in? Were in? Were I think overall in, we had thirty three thousand routes. So, so thirty three thousand. But do we, did you worry about combinations per se? But at first you don't. At first you just yeah. characterize it. So you have to characterize thirty three thousand routes. How many clusters did you end up with for thirty three thousand? We picked. 40, I think. Okay. I mean, you can have as many as you want. That's a yeah. parameter. But one of the things that, that, that Andrew said, which is extremely, makes it extremely hard, what we know in football to differentiate the routes, like the fact that you run out and then you run, run a step back, that little step back is what makes the route the route, yeah. or the route the route, depending on how you pronounce it. But the computer sees all this variance in the direction and length that you run out, and that's what it clusters on. Okay. It doesn't know that that step back is the thing okay. that matters. Okay. So this means that the clustering process is hard. And it clus- clustering, in my experience, is this very fragile thing. It's really neat and helpful, but it's fragile. You just tweak things a little bit, and all of a sudden it clusters in a different way. So you had to go through this process of getting a clustering that you were happy with, and you end up with like 40 different routes, essentially. Yeah. Now you have to say two things. You have to say what you have to co- – build the combinations and, and there's a, a lot of combinations you can build with four yes. different routes and then ask the economic value essentially of the different combinations can you walk us through those steps yeah so the the thing here is that the data sounds really big right you know thousands of observations but it's really not for a lot of these purposes because um, once you get all those routes like you say you you need to look at the combinations mm-hmm. of them and see which combinations work out best mm-hmm. but you often don't have Kind of Many combinations. Every combination yeah. doesn't exist. Right. You know, but it is big because each route itself underlying that has thousands of observations. Yes. yes. So yes. it's 33,000 routes, as Jake mentioned, multiplied by thousands of observations per route. You're looking at you know terabytes of data or maybe certainly gigabytes going in. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Uh, but so going from, from the route labels to route combinations as kind of a, a value is really, really difficult. And that's where the project, I think, kind of stumbled because um, we really didn't find a lot. We didn't find kind of this is your best combination of routes. Use this play. Well, the, the, our prior would have been that it would be hard to do that because mm-hmm. the the system's kind of efficient. Essentially, you'd be surprising if there was this underutilized, over I mean undervalued you know route combination. Yeah, if running a slant with a curl was like you know a like an effect. average of like yeah. ten more yards, I think. Well, someone would have discovered the that. Patriots would have done it, and then we all would have like you know Copied adjusted. It. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Yep, and I I mean I think that's what the project was asking us to do was to find a play like yeah. that. That's worth ten extra yards, and it just wasn't there. Yeah. Okay, what, did you get any hints of anything? I mean, do, do, do you do you think on that? I mean, so one, let me just say, I'm sure these guys considered it a success just to see you, you know, struggle with the process sure. and the, the the methodologies you used to even do as far as you did. But was there anything on the other? Was there any of the anticipated fruit at the end? Like, what's the closest thing you came to an insight about routes and their values? We found that inside curl routes were actually. Increased so around around like ten yard inside curls uh, increased your expected completion percentage by around thirty percent, which is very high. So we're pretty skeptical about that claim. I'm okay. very skeptical <laughs> about it, but that was just something that the data showed. By the way, that's very sophisticated. You know, perspective. You find this big effect and immediately don't believe it. Yeah, <laughs> that's he hangs around with me. That's, <laughs> that's awesome. Um, so. All right, so you 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 push through in a very intense period of time to this level of understanding, and then you you wait and find out how you did. How surprised were you when you were you were invited to Indianapolis? Very surprised. Um, 
we spent a lot of time on this, but we weren't giving just given the time constraints, we weren't really expecting to go further. And then we got, I think Jack got an email was the first way we found out, and mm-hmm. then he sent it to all of us, mm-hmm. and we were pretty excited about it. So they invite you to the Combine, the Combine, of course, where they evaluate college players every year. Indianapolis has been for years in Indianapolis. You guys went, I believe the, the presentations were on Wednesday, which is more or less about the first day of the Combine. But the Combine is like the entire league yeah. convenes there. I mean, everybody is there. What was the actual presentation like, and what was your experience in Indianapolis like? Oh, it was super cool. Michael Lopez did a fantastic job setting everything up. So we mm-hmm. walk in, and they just have these really cool graphics everywhere, and they've got screens up for us mm-hmm. and then cameras all over. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was, we're, we're, it was I mean, you realize experience. you guys were kind of part of the combine. This is what the <laughs> analytics <laughs> side of the sport is. You know, maybe they're going to do this every year, and that actually will be. It promotes You analytics. guys, you yep. know, this competition and everything is your guys' version of, Let's like, the fast. wind sprints and, like, yeah. you know. But, but it also one informs the other. So you yeah. start putting this on stage out there, and some folks around the teams who may not be that deep on this server going, what's that? And maybe mm-hmm. it just changes the conversation. Yeah. All right. So you present. Did you get to hang around and watch other people present? What, uh, did, what did you learn from watching how other people have done the same the same task? Yeah. So actually, just one specific thing. The winner of the open competition actually did label routes and did our alternative methodology. The supervised yes. learning. Which, right. as I, which they, they told me this yesterday, immediately when I told them this is what they should do. Yeah, is is to do this, and uh, in fact, we had we knew it couldn't happen before the uh, during before the submission, but after the submission, before the combine, we'd actually gathered together some professional quarterbacks who are yeah. or former professional quarterbacks who were who are here at resident at Wharton, yeah. and they agreed that they'd actually look at some of these routes and kind of supervise them up. Um, but the person who did it did, did it the old fashioned way. What did he do? He got into the labels for different games, or so he got a login to whatever NFL film package that they use okay and literally just watched a bunch of games and watched all the passing plays and labeled the routes wow wow okay and then how how did that deepen his ability what deeper insight did he get because he got he because he used that different methodology well so i i think one of the things that he did is because he started with a named route that he understood uh he was a lot more confident than we were kind of putting together a play that, okay. that it worked and okay. saying here here are the routes and you know football person would recognize it as this route okay um, we were a little bit hesitant to this do that. This is interesting because you're telling me that they rewarded confidence as opposed to impressive methodology. It's absolutely true. Absolutely true. And the other thing I think they rewarded is pretty pictures. Okay. Um, the, the two winners had really, really <laughs> great visualizations. You say that and, with some like anger. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I really don't. You know, kudos to them. They did, I think, a better job communicating their findings. But when we talked to, to other finalists, they also didn't get super impressive results in terms of kind of actual predictive power. Okay. Okay. Um, fellas, we're down to just the wire here. What do you take away from your experience? I think the NFL is a long way to go in terms of analytics. Just mm-hmm. talking to play, uh, people working for teams, mm-hmm. they're pretty new at this stuff, but so is the public. And I think going forward, there's going to be a lot of new and cool insights. Mm-hmm. You're so community-minded. <laughs> what about you as an individual? Like, what, do you, what, what does it mean for y'all? Well, it's, it's Which just is great. Like, Appreciate yeah. that. Look, it's a really cool experience. We learned a ton from doing it. It, it was a very intense weekend, but I think out of that, we, we just got a lot of new skills. Um, and I think, you know, like I are, said... Are they transferable? This working with this kind of data set, with these kinds of methodologies, that you, you, you find that useful even if you don't do football again? You know, maybe, so. but I think really the important thing is what I was saying. Like, you, you need to learn how to communicate these things well. And the other teams did that better. And I think going and seeing how they did that really is going to help us in the future. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's really neat. That's a big insight and a very general one. 
That's fantastic. All right, guys, we're going to need to wrap up. Really appreciate your taking the time to be with us. That was Jake Flancer and Andrew Castle, both sophomores here at the University of Pennsylvania. They were finalists, impressively finalists, on the NFL's Big Data Bowl. First time ever that NFL made these data available and had a contest. These guys went to the Combine two weeks ago and presented their work two weeks ago today and um, learned a few things along the way. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics live from the Wharton School, Huntsman Hall, Sirius XM Business Radio Studios. With the big window looking out onto Locust Walk, this is Cade Massey hosting along with Audie Weiner and Shane Jensen. Eric Bradlow was in earlier, but he's out now. You guys can join us. You can be in here, one eight four four Wharton. That's one eight four four nine four two seventy eight sixty six or email us businessradio at SiriusXM.com. Or hit us up on Twitter at WMoneyball is our handle there at WMoneyball. You can reach out anytime, send us questions, observations, complaints, whatever you got. We are just out of a conversation with a couple of Penn sophomores in studio. Great fun, impressive, impressive young men as they say. Impressive in multiple respects, both their statistical expertise and also their ability to do an interview. They they handled yeah, themselves quite, quite well in here. Those guys, of course, were here because they were finalists in the NFL Big Data Bowl, playing with next generation stats. Some of the first people to get their hands on and make some progress with football's NGS data. In this half hour, delighted to welcome Travis Sochik to the show. Travis is a MLB reporter for Five Thirty Eight. He's the author of Big Data Baseball and co-author of an upcoming book that sounds fascinating. We're going to hear a lot about it. That book is called The MVP Machine. Travis, welcome to the show. Thanks for making some time for me on the Odell Beckham Day. Yeah, exactly. Oh, no. We tried- Baseball is, is so much more relevant right now. <laughs> <laughs> we, you, got, you got Adi Weiner in here who's always going to lean baseball, and we tried to get the Beckham news out of our system in the first half we hour. Did. We were fairly, fairly successful in that. So, Travis, where are you calling in from today? I actually live on the west side of Cleveland, so oh my, uh, yeah. The, <laughs> the people here, I don't, I don't think they can believe what's going on here. <laughs> so it's an interesting time to have moved back you to need, uh, my hometown. That is your hometown. How long have you lived there? Well, I technically I moved back in seven, end of seventeen. Okay, but, uh, I'll take credit for the turnaround. No so, kidding, you got there. You uh, arrived just before turnaround. Mayfield, and that's that's timing it really well. I was there for Dabo Sweeney's first season at Clemson. Wow. Went on the Pirates beat at 13. I'm, I'm going to take credit for all these you, you should. You should. You should auction your services off to these other these other cities. <laughs> so we could totally. I'm available. Well, exactly. We'll try to get you. We'll try to promote that opportunity. We we could talk about Beckham a lot with you since you are sitting there in Cleveland. I mean, but we'll we'll try to hold off. I, I'll only suggest that you somehow get yourself downtown, ride in some cabs. You got to go, kind of soak up that atmosphere. Whenever, <laughs> whenever these events happen in cities, I mean, the, it really does change the vibe of the city for a little while. It's remarkable. It really does. It really does. Yeah, it's. Uh, it'll be interesting to see. Uh, I, I should take an Uber downtown and see what's going on. You should. You uh, should. You should go. You go should to a go. bar. Sit around. Whenever. Whenever. Whenever the. Eagles made the playoffs season before last, but lost Wentz along the way. It was just amazing. I mean, the conversation and, and you know, so despite Uber 
Philly's a great cab town still. Every cab he got into, the conversation was about the right. Eagles. I mean, it's just, yeah. it's Wentz, and can they do it now? And then, and then the vibe just turned as, as Foles started performing a, a, the way he did. A city that is enjoying success in one of the major sports is a much happier city. It's fun. Hmm. It's fun. I was, I was in Buffalo for a couple of their runs, for, for their Super Bowl runs. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, it was painful in January. Yeah. But on the way to January, it was great. Travis, you're a baseball guy. And, of course, the Indians are there. Um, what's your relationship with the Indians? Are, are you a fan? Are you followed? Do you go to games? I'm, they're one of the teams that I love to pull for because um, they were kind of early on to some of this stuff, and they're a small market team, so it's one they're of the well advantages. Run. Yeah, they're well Very run. Very well exactly. run. Yeah, they were really they – I believe they had the first proprietary database in the game. They were sort of the, – they were the Moneyball A's before the Moneyball A's were the Moneyball A's, you know, and uh, – Paul Dita Podesta was like right. on the depth chart here in the analytics department. <laughs> right. Oakland. So, yeah, the, the Indians deserve a lot of credit for, uh, you know, kind of accelerating that uh, favorite metric movement into the sport. And I was, I was a teenager. I was, I was a kid growing up here when they were good, when they were peaking under John, John Hart in the, the 90s. So, yeah, I grew up a fan. And then as you become a, and then I moved away for a while and, uh, as you become a a journalist, you're supposed I don't know, you see all the sausages made behind the scenes and you still enjoy sports, but you become less you don't root for teams as much as you do. Maybe your your stories or individuals you you know, so uh yeah, I was still pulling for them against the Cubs. Yeah. <laughs> oh, it's painful. Wow. Uh, uh, that was, that was you do lose some of the fan in you and you I think go to the the dark side of the sports media. I, I can believe that you lose some of it, but I, I hope you don't lose all of it, Travis. The, it's a shame to, to, to lose it all. I'm glad you got some allegiances there to a, a team that we still love. Listen, we want to talk with you about the work that you've been doing more recently. You've got a book coming out, The MVP Machine, and it sounds it sounds like, we haven't seen it, of course, but it sounds like it is heavily focused on the, the, the use of technology and analytics in the development of players, which I think is a story that many people miss. We think... We think in terms of, well, it helps us identify undervalued assets. Maybe it helps us make better decisions on the field. But it feels like there's this kind of third wave. And I've heard Ted Knutson of, Stat, of, of um, StatsBomb talk about it this way. Kind of third, third wave of analytics is the development of players. And baseball is surely ahead of everybody else in this way because it's been changing, you know, Changing the way people pitch, changing the we way we observe it. We can see it on the field with the with the velocities increasing. I think that it comes from this MVP machine, this this whole mm-hmm. way of and, training and, and your how, arm and how swings have changed over the last few years. Yeah, as well. people are reconstructing that, their swings. But that's yeah. actually that's that's newer technology. The the speed technology and the tracking of the ball and its and its curvature has been around for a little bit longer than mm-hmm. the, than, than, the, than the swing technology is mm-hmm. coming right around. So this is this is kind of from an outsider how we how we think about what's going on and it's pretty cutting edge but you're on the inside of this and you've written a whole book on it so can you tell us where you're coming from yeah no uh, you guys so hit on a lot of the points and arguments that are made in the book and you know ben Lindbergh, my the co-author uh, of the book along with myself he we thought there was this kind of void on the, the baseball bookshelf where their player development has just been overlooked it's uh and i think part of the reason is it's Behind the scenes, we don't see player development occurring when we go to a ballpark. Even if you really show up for batting practice, we're not seeing player development techniques. And for throughout most of the history of baseball, there uh, there wasn't the technology, there wasn't the statistical rigor to really make uh, advancements in player development. So it was just kind of conventional wisdom handed down generation to generation. But 
because of technology, because you know, the money ball movement allowed this acceptance of statistical rigor and uh, objective thinking to come into baseball, we're now seeing player development really being, uh, we're at the moment, I would, call, I would describe it as the end of the beginning of kind of overturning traditional player development practices, hmm. whether it's adding velocity, uh, pitch design, swing planes from the offensive side. We're seeing players really, we're seeing the teams and players getting out on the front end of this movement really uh, making considerable gains. Uh, Trevor Bauer is a big uh, part of this book, and I'm in Cleveland, so I spoke with him quite a bit this past season, and he designed, uh, he's a polarizing figure, but he designed, he, he, he really deserves credit for being a revolutionary figure in this movement, as he brought in the Edutronic camera, which allows pitchers to, uh, for the first time, see exactly how their hands and fingers are imparting spin on a ball. Rapsodo, optical and radar tracking technology, gives a spin axis and spin rate. And he designed a slider from scratch off season that became one of the best pitchers in baseball last year. So hold on, tell, think, t- tell us about that. He designed a slider from scratch. Can you just walk us through the mechanics of that? <laughs> uh yeah, without giving away every interesting detail in the book, he uh, he studied the grips of other pitchers he wanted. He put his how do you get that information? Hand. How does the, the grips of another yeah, pitcher right. come to his yeah. hands? Uh, yeah, so he would place uh, he would look at movement pro- profiles of pitches he uh, he wanted to emulate, and when he could, some of them were in his own in his own clubhouse, which was fortunate, like Corey Kluber, Mike Clevenger at Great Sliders. Uh, uh, and other pitchers in the game, he would put this high-speed uh, camera, the Edutronic, that we've seen some beat writers start to notice in camps this spring. Uh, and he would see exactly how these pitchers were imparting the slider spin he wanted on the ball. And he cut away that process, that search for feel. Uh, and then he would – there's still a trial and error process of, okay, what is the spin access? What is the movement profile of this pitch? But he was able to cut that feedback loop feedback loop down uh, to a point where he was able to really manufacture this pitch in a couple of, in a couple months, sorry. Uh, you know, by the middle of the season, it was playing as arguably a top three uh, slider in baseball among starting pitchers. Uh, so let me see if I can, I, let me see if I can break this down a little bit. You know, Travis, so what you're saying is you're, you're, he takes these cameras and then so he's... But let's try, I'm at the risk of going too much, I'm curious... I thought we had this technology. You're talking about this camera as if it's a new thing. I thought we've had this kind of detail on pictures for a while. So what's new about this particular camera? Uh, well, for instance, like every – you have your HD television in your home, but even that camera has a rolling shutter, which doesn't – for most – for the purposes of watching a game, it's great. But if you're trying to uh, – for scientific research and application, <laughs> it is not great when you're trying to examine a high – speed moving object like a pitcher's hand which okay. is moving at thousands of angular degrees per second so you cannot actually until this camera was in the game uh you could not actually see how your index finger was manipulating. Uh, the, the cameras ball. are not actually in the game they're they're there it's not like they're there on spring training uh, they're oh no no, we're, no, no no that's right Right, so he, he you have to set him up in very specific times, and he gets this data. So this is how he begins. He starts to notice that there are different grips and the terrific um, pitchers who have great sliders are using, and then he kind of takes it back to the laboratory, and I think this is the piece that's really remarkable and also transferable to other sports. He's getting instant feedback on what he tries with his, his own hands on what's produ- being produced 
on on the pitch. Well, he gets feedback in two different ways. One, the outcome, but also he's able to say, "I think I did this thing with my finger," but and he the can camera, go look at it. Right? Camera can yeah. tell him precisely whether he did it the way it felt or not. That's exactly right. So, yeah, without giving away every, <laughs> it's all right. It's, it's all right. It's all right. We're book. gonna buy the book. Don't worry about it. <laughs> you gotta buy the book. Yeah, yeah. he cut the feedback loop down, mm-hmm. and he started experimenting with his camera in the beginning of 2015. And now, for the first time in spring training, we've seen the majority of teams start to uh, bring at least a couple of these cameras into their camps, focus it on their pitchers, and you know, see if they can. Uh, improve a breaking ball grip, see if they can get more rise on a fastball. So uh, I think the future, you know, the, the possibilities of pitch design, batters already have enough problems against the velocity increases right. uh, that's tied to uh, different ways of training, different ways of thinking about training. So now if pitchers, if the majority of pitchers in baseball eventually learn new ways to manipulate the ball and make it move differently or add pitches, <laughs> hitter. Uh, the pitching advantage is just going to increase. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's it's really interesting. So instead of the search for feel, I think what the new technology and uh, new ways of thinking about skill game are really going to do is uh, just raise the ceiling on every curious individual data set of a team, which most are. Uh, and, and I think one of the other uh, important things to to understand why we're so down to this idea is that almost every team, every front office is pretty smart now. They all, most of them have multiple analysts, if not very robust data, uh, you know, decision science departments, whereas player development is still kind of the wild west. A lot of this is done behind the scenes. Teams have different degrees of uh, technology infrastructure in place, and uh, some teams are much more traditional with coaching player development staffs. Others have gone to really overturn traditional thinking. So the potential for a competitive advantage, whether you're an individual like Bauer or a team, is really massive in this area of player development. Right, which is huge because there there aren't that many potential edges in the sport. As as everyone levels out on analytics, as free agents, you have to pay market price or whatever. This is one of the only edges that remains available. Can you talk to us a little bit about how what kinds of people are involved in this so you said some folks are using you know continuing to use traditional coaches or or there's not really a traditional player development but i assume that this i mean this kind of is the intersection of analytics and coaching so who are the individuals what kind of people are sitting at that intersection helping the players in this development yeah what's interesting is uh driveline baseball uh, basically a, a warehouse out in seattle uh, founded by Kyle Bodie, has had seven or eight of its employees hired by major league teams this off season. And what Driveline has done is they basically took a uh, quantitative approach to player development. They measured, they tried all sorts of new practices, they questioned everything, and perhaps most important, they measured everything and found out ways to measure everything. They built their own bio- biomechanics lab and they didn't have the cash to have someone install a state-of-the-art one. And so all sorts of interesting things have been going on at Driveline over the last you know, six or seven years, and teams have started to notice. Uh, and instead of reasoning by analogy and going off of what your coach told you has is, is kind of been baseball tradition and filling every coaching staff and many player development staff with ex-players, uh, we're now seeing teams being more open-minded to hiring people who have never played the game professionally or maybe not at all but have uh, come to understand how 
how the body works, what optimal motor patterns are, who understand how to me- who understand how to measure everything, and what is an optimum swing plane. What should the uh, the glove arm be doing in the throwing motion? Uh, understand the kinetics of the throwing motion. So uh, these you know uh, development sports scientists of sorts are starting to enter the game in roles that they've never had before. And then it's very much I think what's happening happening with uh, for driveline employees being hired this, this offseason is very similar to uh, when we started to see the influx of uh, Ivy Leaguers or smart folks with STEM degrees coming into the game and uh, analytics roles, you know, 15 years ago after Moneyball came out. So, so Travis, t- uh, talk to us about that because those guys weren't directly interfacing with players by and large. But That's now right. we're talking about a, a, a category of staff who are presumably sitting with players, or at least they're working closely well, with them with the equipment. I mean, they're, they're, the argument is that these people understand the breakdown of the of the performance metrics. I mean, the actual mechanics of, of swinging of throwing better than anyone. Well, and they're there. fascinated by how they are received by the players. You're, some of these guys might be former players, but some of them might not. I would be. guess and they're so, probably not. So now you've got a you know you've got a big league pitcher maybe a, you know maybe a, a successful starting big league pitcher who's who's listening to to a, a nobody talk about pitching mechanics right uh, that is true and there's no doubt uh some communication barriers that still have to be broken down uh i think that'll you know that'll probably always be an issue in human <laughs> just with humans in general in any field uh now some really smart teams have found these conduits of sorts who are ex-players but who also are open-minded and yeah. interested in new ways of development and they've put them in as a you know, liaisons between the two camps right uh, and I, I also think you're seeing more and more players uh open-minded to uh new ideas to improve themselves especially desperate players who either need to hang on to a roster spot or right. understand they have to raise their ceiling uh you look at I think Justin Turner is a great example of this, a guy who was non-tendered by the Mets after the, I think it was the 13 season, and he went out, he uh, sought out a swing change guru, so, and since then, he's become one of the most efficient offensive players in baseball, and we all we all know Justin Turner today is a big star, but at age 29, it looked like Justin Turner is going to be at baseball that's type, that's the type of player who's really benefited from the early wave of this. Or right, I feel like J.D. Martinez is another one that really Martinez had. Oh, he's yeah, the one that the Astros story. writer talks about in his book about the Astros, that they let him go, essentially, because they didn't that's think right. he had it, and then he went and that's reconstructed. Right. So can, we've talked a lot about the pitching side. Can you talk about the hitting side? So with Martinez and with Turner, you're talking about guys who reconstruct their swings? It's, That's so, right. It's, so, what's interesting here is it that that some guys can do this and some guys can't? Because if it's, are, are we only listening? Are we, are we only observing the successes and who's the background there that we're not seeing that did that tried this? Yeah. So, for, for example, for like, catastrophic failures in in golf. You know, this kind of technology has existed in golf for longer, and there have been right. folks who kind of reconstruct their swings. I mean, Tiger Woods kind of famously reconstructed his swings mid-career and and there's some i, I don't know that it's kind of confounded with some other issues but it's not always a successful thing so can you talk with us about that side of the the hitting side of things yeah and there there could be some selection bias here but uh part of our argument is that you know everyone can be better at whatever they're doing really and uh if you've been going by conventional wisdom for 100 years and it's 
uh, there's probably a lot to be overturned. And at the end of the day, a line drive and a fly ball are more valuable batted ball types than a ground ball. So if you can design a swing that will produce more balls that go over the infielders' heads and gloves, uh, that's beneficial. And we've seen a number of guys do that. And it's overturning conventional wisdom like uh, we've heard. Batted, uh, I don't know about you guys, but when I played Little League, uh, <laughs> or if you played high school baseball, or even pro baseball, you probably never heard your hitting coach tell you to try to pull a ball, pull a home run. Uh, that just was never taught. It was uh, use the opposite field, hit low line drives, use a big part of the ballpark. But like some of the folks at Driveline, uh, which began on the pitching side, has become more interested in overturning uh thought and theory on hitting is you want to be able to the most valuable batted ball type in baseball is the uh the pull pulling a ball in the air but that's never taught why is that and there's so many hitters that are so poor at doing that because they've never really uh focused on practicing that skill so in cleveland we've seen two uh jose ramirez no one ever projected him to be a power hitter i don't think he ever hit five home runs more than five at a minor league stop i think he slugged 340 as a rookie and he hit 39 home runs last year because he went he went from a ground ball pull side hitter to an air ball pull side hitter, uh, and he also improved his selectivity at the plate. And there's technology advances and training advances. Can, can I ask about Ramirez that. specifically in particular um, to your sure. this pull? Did he add miles per hour to his exit velocity, or did he recognize that by pulling the ball, the fences are closer, and therefore you get many more home runs? Which of it, or was it a combination? I mean, how does a guy go from non-power to power? The typical way you'd, you'd imagine this is just get stronger, but you, that's not necessarily what you seem to be implying. Right, yeah. He was still... Uh, he's not uh, an outlier when it comes to exit velocity. He is in the... I think he's around part of the 55th percentile or something, he is slightly above average when it comes to exit velocity. So there's a bunch of guys who are bigger, stronger, who have more raw power, but have not optimized their swing or learned how to tap into it. And he's kind of exhibit A of a, he might be five foot nine. <laughs> he hit 39 home runs last year because he went from a, uh, uh, he didn't add, uh, he didn't go from an average fly ball of 300 to 350 feet. He went from a guy who hit, 60% of the balls to his pulse out on the ground to more than half of those went in the air. Uh, and part of that is being more selective and picking out better pitches to hit. And that, we argue, can be trained to some degree, too. But I, I think it's also understanding of how to do damage, where to do damage. Uh, you know, if you use the big part of the ballpark, that's also the deepest part of the ballpark. If you can become a master of the pulse side air ball, that is the easiest place that's right. to do yeah. damage. So we're talking to Travis Sachek. Travis is an MLB reporter for 538. He's the author of Big Data Baseball and the co-author, along with Ben Lindbergh, of an upcoming book called The MVP Machine, where they talk a great deal about the way technology is changing the way players are developed. Not just selected, right, but developed, the way they're developed. Which is huge. Listen, Travis, I'm probably, among the three of us, the, the most regular reader of your columns on 538. And I'm, of course, very much looking forward to your book. But you've written recently a couple of columns about Bryce Harper. 
And of course, here in Philadelphia, he's he's someone who's uh, who's changed the conversation. He's our, um, you know, uh, Odell Beckham, right for for Cleveland, and very very excited about it. But thing that that you've written, you've written a couple of pieces, haven't been so optimistic about the value. Some a little bit, you know, better than worse. Um, and so I wanted to put it to you directly. One of the things that one of the the statistics that the baseball people, the five thirty eight people in particular, are particularly in love with. It's uh, the analysts have really promoted war. As a statistic, that's wins above replacement. I was I used that word in the hallway the other day, and someone thought I was advocating war. <laughs> got a little bit of trouble. Like, pro pro war stances are a bold move. Yeah. So wins above replacement. But R- Bryce Harper, in particular, I think is is a fascinating um, question for the actual metric itself. So take last year. We have two ways of measuring it. There's a fan graphs war. There's the baseball reference war. And in your article, you you, uh, you also used another way to evaluate a player, which is a simulation. So just I'll just I'll throw these three numbers at, at you, and I want you to get your reaction. So one of the wars I forget whether it's fan graphs or baseball uh, baseball reference had Bryce Harper last year as a one point three war wins above replacement, which is uh, better than it's about average for a major league baseball player. The other one was a three point five, which is not quite top, you know maybe top quartile or maybe a little higher than that. It's a pretty solidly good season, 3.5 war. And then, then, and then in your simulation, you had Brett, Bryce Harper bringing six wins to the Phillies. So what you got? You got six is an extraordinary player. I mean, it's maybe not the best in the league, but certainly close to top 10. 3.5 is probably 25th or, uh, in the league, and 1.3 is crappy. Can I just say, as an outsider, as a casual observer of baseball, yet an analyst, it's so disheartening and unsettling to hear that there are three different war methodologies. I thought we and I that this is what baseball by like two wins. Uh, like, oh, you yeah, know, nobody or, disagrees yeah. about Trout. He's between nine and a ten and a half on I his season. I thought baseball right? solved this. I thought uh, baseball exactly. a single <laughs> fielding's. A so, large so, part so, of that so I want to hear what your reaction is before we pipe it. Yeah. So the we. The simulation was done by Out of the Park Developments, and uh, they do some really great stuff on the simulation side. Uh, and we did share that information. I think some of the, uh, the forecast by Fangraphs and our own 538 forecast, those projections were a little more modest, I think, between two and four wins that he would add. And there's no doubt he is going to make the Phillies better in the short term. Uh, and I think part of the discrepancy in the war values and even the projection values is his defense. Uh, we still don't, uh, the baseball community still doesn't have the greatest handle on defensive value and how to measure it. It's certainly not as accurate as uh, measuring uh, quantifying offensive value. But what we do all agree on in the baseball analyst community is his defense took a huge step back last year. And, uh, who knows the underlying reason of that? I, I, I co-authored the one piece of Neil Payne, and he looked at similar uh, defensive declines uh, since we've had measures like defensive run saved and ultimate zone rating, and how those how players with a similar one-year drop like Harper did in year two and three out. And I think the good news is they recovered some ability, but they never. Uh, I don't think any or. Uh, maybe there are a few instances, uh, but I don't think any of those players ever uh, rebounded to. Uh, their previous status. So we'll have to see. Uh, uh, it depends a little bit how much you buy into those defensive numbers. But I do you do buy into them? Defense is a concern. I mean, I, I I do to a degree. I think they're better than the eye test uh, in many ways. And I 
I think what they suggest is that Harper's destined for a corner outfield or a corner bat position, uh, and that is just inherently going to make him a less valuable player uh, than a guy who could stick in center field or you know, the more premium position. So a lot's going to depend on his bat carrying him, and as we saw in 215, this guy has shown the potential to be uh, as good a hitter as anyone, as anyone in baseball. Uh, but as I wrote in both of those pieces, there's also some underlying concerns on just how well uh, his performance and really any star level performance, uh, how how long that extends into a into a career. Mm-hmm. We had a report out of exhibition. I think Eric must have been down in Florida or something. He said that in Harper's first at bat or one of his first at bats, the defensive shift was pronounced against him. So is that something we've seen before? And th- this is me asking a stupid question. How much has the shift affected him? And and what do you think about that's going forward? Is he going to be a guy that adapts to that, or is he just kind of plow through it? He wait for the league to change the rules. What's going to happen? Yeah, he hasn't been uh, any any left-handed hitter who hits a pull side ground ball is going to or low liner is going to be most affected by the shift. But he's been more of a neutral batted ball profile where he gets a lot of. I mean, he's about one ground ball for one fly ball throughout his career, so he hasn't been one of the most. Adversely affected. Affected. I, I think he said he's concerned about seeing more four-man outfield shifts, and we began, or four-man outfield alignments, and we began to see some of those last year. Uh, you know, I think if Harper's in a good place, making solid square contact, and is healthy, uh, he'll be fine. I, one of my concerns is just his uh, when he contacts a fastball, they usually uh, go quite a, quite a distance, but his ability to make contact against fastballs and just contact in the zone in general uh, has been on a bit of a troubling decline. I think his whiff rate just on fastballs in general last year was at a, a stat cast era high of 31.5%, I think, and his zone contact rate, meaning uh, the percent of times he swung and made contact with the pitch in the zone, was, I think, the fourth lowest in baseball. Wow. I mean, that was Joey Gallo territory, and it was a, one of the biggest one-year declines in uh, in baseball, and you know maybe he was dealing with a nagging injury, but the, but if that was the case, he's, the problem is he's always dealing with nagging injuries. I think he's only played three full healthy seasons. Uh, so yeah, I think one of the things that just troubles me about Harper is is this guy losing contact as ability. Is he losing athleticism? Is a guy who has been uh, uh, taking so many baseball reps and uh, was at such a high level at such a young age? Is right. he a guy who is he worn out? Is that what we're hearing? Yeah. He's the opposite of uh, Le'Veon Bell taking a year off. And do you get <laughs> do you get worn out? Are those reps especially onerous when you get them at that early age? Like you start like LeBron playing so much as an eighteen year old or what have you? And, Listen, Travis, right. we'll we'll let you go, but we really appreciate your taking the time to be with us, especially on Odell Beckham Day in Cleveland. Yeah. We hope, right. we hope you find a way to enjoy that, but keep up the great work, and we wish you the best, especially with the new book, The MVP Machine, as it comes out in June. I enjoyed it. Thanks for, so much for having me on, fellas. You bet, of course. We are just off the phone with Travis Sachek. We are rolling into the last segment of the show, Open Lines. We have a few different miscellany from around the world of sports you want to connect, but quickly on Sachek, the thing that most jumped out to me there at the end was this conversation about Harper and the level of detail you can go into now in evaluating a player's performance mm-hmm. and how helpful presumably that is. So no longer is it, well, the guy, you know, only hit, you know, 279 last year, he's off, or he only had, you know, 35 dingers last year, he's off. Instead, it's like, no, 
his contact rate when swinging at a ball in the strike zone is the fourth lowest in major league. That's more informative. Yeah. Right, it is, but you have to remember some of these numbers are f- quite variable year to year. There's a lot of... Uh, well, tell me about know. that. I'm assuming that some of these fundamental processes are less variable. Well, they're... All right, the problem is is that they're, 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 these are fractions, right? So it's between 26 and 30. So you can easily bounce around between 26 and 30 just by chance variation. And that's really the, the aspect of it that, that, I, that I want you to think about. And, Another, and, and so are, are you sort of saying that, you know, everybody's kind of in this relatively no, 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 no. narrow range. And so therefore, like no, your, your relative Harper. standing to people is it, it can jump around, around a lot. lot. No, so there are people who are very good contact. They're closer to the 15 percent range. They're sort of the, the power hitting Bryce Harper types who are in the 25 to 30 range. But, but within what, what that numbers range, are you using right uh, now? contact in the zone that was one of the things that he was talking about. Why is higher bad? Oh, no, um, sorry, whiff rate. It's miss rate. I see. Okay. Sorry. Okay. Got to get it, get the right direction. Okay. Right. So Harper misses about, right last year he missed 30% of the fastballs in the zone. That's considered a lot. You're supposed to hit the balls in the zone. Mm-hmm. Uh, this Professional hitters do that. I don't, but professional hitters do. And a really good power uh, um, contact hitter uh, misses only 15% of the time. So, But even within an individual player, you get quite a bit of bounce, and that that's what that's the, the aspect of it that, that is... Um, is not I'm not that concerned. Okay, well, as, as so well, you're pushing me on. I'm, I was claiming kind of the opposite. Was yes, that these that some of these process, I think, process measures He's are like more, more fundamental. Reliable. Yeah, things, they're more right? fundamental. I would have yeah. thought that's more fundamental than certainly the because it takes statistics. it takes out. I mean, you know, it takes out some of the kind of chance outcome like that's built into mm-hmm. batting average of where the ball yep. actually goes and who plays it and uh, you know fields mm-hmm. it and everything. Mm-hmm. But but yeah, no, I mean, I I understand that there is sort of I, I guess. Really, you know, as a statistician, what we want is kind of error bars on the yes. measures season to season. And they typically aren't pack part of the package. Now, he'll see over a 1,000, probably maybe 2,000 balls in the zone. Mm-hmm. So if you just use the basic rule of thumb, you're still looking at, what are we looking at, uh, 2% variance on that, the standard deviation? Yeah. So that's... You know, so a five percent move is clearly yeah, a big you move. Should use yeah. some 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 normalization to to really interpret it. All right, more on the baseball front. There was an announcement this week. I believe it was this week. I was reading about this week about some experimentation that's going to happen in the Atlantic. Yeah. League. So the Atlantic League is one My of the robot Atlantic umpires. <laughs> robot coming, umpires. They're coming in, so, guys. No, I thought you would be very fascinated by that. Exactly. Yeah. So this is an eight, what what level of baseball is this? It's an independent league. It's independent. But it, I mean, that, it's an independent league in the sense that it's not actually part of the farm system for for the major leagues. But they do have a a, a relationship with major league baseball. Does, does the quality of play equate to something in the farm system, or is it below the entire? Yeah, farm no, system? I, I think it, no, it's I probably it about equates. A. Yeah, it's A. All right. Yeah, and there are eight teams. Which, I mean, you're t- I, I read that the, the the teams range from like Sugarland, Texas, all the way up here. I don't know how an eight team league plays across that geography, but apparently they do. Anyway. Lots of interesting rules changes where the minor league, the experimentation is probably less than we might like. These guys are going pretty strong. You know, but it's all yeah. in, it's all typically, other than the umpire change, which is about accuracy, the rest of the changes are all about speed. Yeah. T- time of game, pace of play. The two extra feet to the pitching mound is not. Well, that's not. That's not about, about scoring. That's about, yeah, that's about scoring. Two extra feet, which is I know, what the heck? huge. That's unbelievable. And actually, if I were a pitcher, I'd be very disturbed by that. Because are you that kidding? is a gigantic change. Yeah. I was, spend- yeah, I mean, when I first read about that, I, I you know, again, uh, and I don't know enough about pitching mechanics. Like, if you if you're sort of seeing the Atlantic lead as kind of like a stop on your in your career, that 
isn't it going to be hard to go back yeah, and yeah. forth between the Atlantic yes. League and, and other leagues? I mean, this two two feet's got to kind of. <laughs> don't you have to really kind of change your entire? Imagine two feet emotion? on a basketball hoop. Imagine well, making the basketball hoop six inches higher, or the, the three court, the three point line two feet back. Yeah, no, you spend your whole life, you know, calibrated to one thing, and then all of a sudden you've got to shift. I mean, I admire. I admire. We're going to need to do something to. I think. This is, I think that that's the one change that I would be ra- really radically against changing the distance. The thing they've done in the past is been the mound height. The mound. The mound so height that will changed. that would advantage or disadvantage the pitcher by what you do. Why not just lower the mound a little bit? Exactly. Lower the mound. That was that happened in the late sixties. So in the the late sixties I assume that would be as fun to, that would uh, I, I mean I would have the same argument for that though. Like doesn't that just still fundamentally no, I mean if it really does make if, if it makes the difference you want it to make, it's gonna fundamentally change the motion that the pitchers have to do as well, right? I mean if you really are trying to Introduce a change that makes a okay, difference. Let me just, let's just throw this out for someone who's played baseball and done a lot of pitching. The mound height, you've been dealing with variance in mound height your entire life. Every different field you've been on the in playground, your life. It was actually the playground kind of a, neg- from the kind of a negative one. It it just, a negative and it was, some of them were flat, some of them were high. That is the thing yeah. that you've just been dealing with. Yeah, by the time you got to upper level NCAA or minor league baseball, there, it's, it's, it's rigorous and it's fixed. But your whole life you've been dealing with it. But that 60 foot 6 inches has been with you since you were 13. Mm-hmm. And it's, that's just a big, big change. And I can't imagine the players are going to be happy. Well, remarkably, they're also going to do it at the halfway point of the season. <laughs> yeah, I mean, really, I kind of admire. But they also made, I think no, they look, made. It's beautiful experimental methodology. It's like, no, no, we yeah. don't want to do it for the whole season. Then we don't have a control group. Right, 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 right. <laughs> but, you know, the hitters are going to be completely befuddled by this as well. I know. It throws Because the, the effect, if you think about it. They should the, really do it every other you know, game. You know, it's going to add. They want to experimental design it, right? By the one thing that's very, this is, <laughs> yes. here's the thing that's quite fascinating from a physics perspective. Because it because of the way the acceleration of gravity, by the time it gets the ball gets to home plate, it's when it's the downward velocity is fastest. So add that extra two feet, the movement of the ball is going to look gigantically larger to a batter, though slower. That's right. They'll be moving so the a little slower. So the downward velocity is higher, but the the, but the, 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 the approaching the horizontal velocity, velocity yeah. will be lower. Yeah. I think I think what, this is supposed to be a benefit for the hitters. But it's and it's going to be completely them. fooling the hitters just as much. I think there this is going to be a disaster waiting to happen. Yeah, well, I, I, it's going to be entertaining. I wish they would do Atlantic it. Games. I wish right, they right. would well, do yeah, it. Where's the nearest Atlantic team? We should go. We should go to. A we game. should go. Actually, not a bad idea. So maybe what, we should buy one of these teams. We were yeah, talking about that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> what other rules changes are you thinking about? Would interesting. Well, uh, so they they've they're decreasing the amount of time between innings. Uh, 2.0 from two minutes, five seconds to one minute, 45. Okay, that's, I think, reasonable. Um, they're also decreasing the length of t- um, the distance to home to, to uh, first base. That's there you go. nothing. Though. That's, that's, that's just, to me, to. that's just really nothing. Um, the other thing, the, the thing that they're, they're, they're uh, minimum three three batters. Yeah, that's yeah. the rule that we've that's heard some talk about for baseball. So they're going to, a pitcher must face. At least three batters before he gets changed. So no, no more of this one, one and one and done right. kind of. And, and yeah. no visiting the mound, unless there's a pitching change without a pitching change or uh, okay, or an injury. Good, yeah. And so good. these are all about speed. Yeah, mm-hmm. the game has got to go faster. But I think we talked about this in previous uh, shows. The real culprit is time between pitches, and they're working on that at the minor league level. And, and foul balls are way up, so it's also I mean, yeah, they're, they're, at the professional we, we, level, which kind are. of confound you know compounds the time between right. pitches just by inducing more that many more, more pitches, pitches per at bat. Was there must have been a good explanation for why foul balls are up? So I, I read, in fact, we just heard it. That from was Travis, from our, from right? Didn't he write that. Yeah. He, and the the idea was that there. The observation was that last year there were more foul balls than balls put in play. That's probably because there's fewer balls put in play. 
Oh, fair enough. I mean, there are a lot of strikeouts. There are okay. way more strikeouts than ever. Okay, but is but there is some sense that there's something about the about the about pitching now that's different that or maybe on the batting side, but something's changed that there are more foul balls than there used to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. I mean, I, I don't know exactly what the mechanism behind that is. I mean, one hypothesis could be the pitchers are just getting that much better at sort of like existing at the edges yep. of the zone, and therefore that's kind of where you're going to get a lot yep. of the foul balls. How far is Lancaster, fellas? Lancaster is an hour. Lancaster yeah. Barnstormers. Let's oh, go. I love it. The Pennsylvania Clipper Magazine Stadium. There you go. Midsummer trip. We're going to the Atlantic League. We're going we're to go after the mounds changed. After yeah. the mounds. Maybe absolutely. the first game. The first game, game, the first after, game after the mound after changes. That's, That's what we want to do. we got to get it. Matty Dad, find that information for us. balls hitting the turf in front of the hitters. will be fantastic. I'm, I'm, I'm excited. <laughs> we're there. I'll buy tickets this afternoon. All right. Um, guys, we haven't been together since a couple of interesting events. So the MIT Sloan Conference. Yeah. Yeah, which you managed a week to make and a half it to. ago or so, yeah, um, which was good fun, and then the combine, of course, and, and you know Eric is the only one of us that watches all the events on TV, but it makes for good theater. I'm not sure it's a whole lot other. Is than it the matter? Theater. Come on, Shane, tell us. Does it matter? Is there uh, anything the on the combine that, that no, we don't predictive. know? No, it's predictive. It's overweighted. It, it, I mean, I, I don't know what. I mean, the analysis I ran is a few seasons old now, but at least when. When I ran the numbers, it, it was overweighted relative to kind of college performance. So, I mean, certainly um, it seems that they, uh, you know, it's... it's It predicts draft it position, predicts, no, You it, know, it predicts... Uh, the combine performance predicts draft order much better than it does actually predict NFL performance, which mm-hmm. says to me that it's kind of being overweighted when, when teams draft relative to what actually is important to long-term on NFL performance. Did Kyler Murray go to, to Combine? Well, just real quickly, Shane published a uh, paper on this a yes. couple of years ago, one of the few published papers on the work, and it's this classic thing where, yeah, yeah, it's predictive, but it's given it's not as predictive as people think. Um, Murray did not go to the Combine. I don't, he might have gone, but he, he went but didn't throw. He went but didn't throw. So you, you can, there's a range of things you can do. You do measurements. You can lift. You can work out for with position groups. He is, you know, the, these players do their pro days, and that that carries a lot of weight. And um, sometimes the high-profile guy has decided to do most of their work in pro days. So my understanding is that Kyle Murray's pro days today, Oklahoma, man, they've got some they've got some players down there, sadly. And there's going to be a bunch of – and the whole league will be down there to watch Kyle Murray's workout. There's talk now, you know, we speculated on this, I don't know, maybe a month ago, five weeks ago, What are the, when Murray first announced that he's going football, not baseball, we said, is, what's the chances that he'll be a first-round pick? And we were all, maybe it was before he announced, and so we were discounting some because he might not go. There's some risky mm-hmm. draft him in the place baseball. We were pretty skeptical that we he were. would go. But there's this phenomenon that happens in the NFL spring that quarterbacks just kind of drift up yeah. the 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 the, the hype machine has kicked in and now we're like is he going to go number 1 and he's and apparently looks like he will we we just got a mid break update from the markets that said that he is minus 400 Adi, translate minus 400 to us for us in probability 80% he's 80% likely to go number 1 which seems crazy to me mm-hmm. we'll discount I mean, that because there's a, obviously there's a vigorous the juice it's, so it's still 70 75% yeah let's call it 75% yeah. which is insane i mean you just don't see that if it's not you know andrew luck coming out you just don't see people that certain there must be something in particular about about the the team that's well it's kingsbury the the the, the arizona cardinals have the number one pick and they changed coaches this year they hired the texas tech shortly they hired the offense they hired the usc offensive coordinator but he's better known as the texas tech head coach who'd been fired the year before so this tech fires their coach and then now he's an nfl coach 15 minutes later which is amazing anyway cliff kingsbury is known for his offensive schemes 
and his his pass orientation, and he would his system would fit Tyler Murray, Kyler Murray well. And he had spoken highly before he was knew he was going to be an NFL coach. He said, "If I had the number one pick, I'd take Kyler Murray." And now he's got the number one pick. He, I mean, he doesn't. <laughs> so that's where it comes. Yeah, from. He, he said he would take him. Yeah, let's be clear. He doesn't have the number one pick. He's a coach, but he has influence on it. And the reason this is interesting as all is that they drafted Josh Rosen with whatever, the eighth pick or so mm-hmm. last year. He was one of the hot quarterbacks a few years ago, dampened a little bit by the time he got to the draft, but still one of the clear top three picks in the top three quarterbacks in the draft. Didn't have a great season, but rookie quarterbacks rarely have great seasons. Mm-hmm. Also, yeah. he played behind one of the worst lines in the league. I think he had, I think the, the pressure numbers on him were as bad as any other team in the league, and that's a huge factor for any quarterback, yeah. much less a I feel, rookie I feel like that, that was, that was a, the Arizona, I think, fired their offensive coordinator like halfway through the season. I think. So, right? so will yeah, they okay. trade Josh Rosen? They would, the, per, per, if they drafted some, Kyler Murray, presumably, right? Well, this is an interesting conversation that I've heard yeah. come up in circles lately, and that is, you know, maybe, I mean, this is a very reasonable thing. If you, quarterbacks are that valuable and that important and understanding their you know their ability to play in the league is that hard and takes so long why not just keep more of them around yeah so for example the browns had the number one and number four picks last year they took mayfield number one before we all knew mayfield would work out as well as he has should they have picked on who's to say they should have taken you know darn darnold at four and rosen at four? I, I, I feel also. like you you can do that for a couple seasons i mean I, you can't do that for too long or you can't hold you, on to these guys no for you do too it long. until you know who you got well like, right you kind of right. cycle through as many as possible until you find one you want to keep Right. No, but I But don't you have I, to I play that. them and develop them to figure uh, out if they're good? You can't just do that with two? That's that's the real problem here. That it, What is it that you need to see in order to actually discern? Yeah. Well, though I, though, I mean, even even like the really great quarterbacks, many of them don't typically play in their rookie season, right? I mean, like it's... Yes, it's, they it don't. Would not Mahomes be, didn't play. You know, well, it, would, it would be... You know, it wouldn't be unusual for somebody to be like somebody like Kyler Murray to be drafted by a team and not, even though he is this highly touted prospect, to not play in his rookie season right. and kind of develop as you know. But let, on let's the bench. Just, let, me, let me ask a question about this. So I I went and looked at uh, the data set of the, of, the, of a quarterback for the last like thirty years. There's no one who is the same height as Kyler Murray. He's five nine. I think he's going to come in at five ten, but mm-hmm. fair enough. Probably okay. Even that. There's two. There's uh, there's I think one at five ten and maybe two at five eleven. And there's six feet and over is everybody else. Yeah. I mean, it's ridiculous yeah. how censored this data is for short quarterbacks. Yeah. There's only one who's been really successful. I guess that's Winston. Am I getting that right? Um, Doug F- Doug uh, Wilson, Wilson, Wilson Russell Wilson Russell Wilson Doug Flutie, Flutie is the best example, yeah. but that was a generation. A generation. Ago, so he's not in my set. Ago. So, so my question is, what do we make of this as statisticians? I'm I'm very uh, unoptimistic about his long term professional um, future because of this. Something that unless they really I just did, don't know something. That, what if the data are selected? What if there's yeah. been a bias yes, against short quarterbacks, and so you you, you haven't observed right. playable guys because mm-hmm. people haven't thought they were that's right. worth it. That's the that's the counter argument. Well, there's another argument that is that the game's non stationary and that there's the offensive systems are different now, mm-hmm. and you um you can get away with the you can get away with a you can get away with a shorter quarterback. Um, and so wh- wh- also, and that athleticism is more important in a quarterback. And Kyler Murray's athleticism. So is what do you charts. give up? My understanding, when you're five nine as opposed to six four, you can't see. Isn't that the whole argument? Well, it, it's passing. Yeah, I guess your passing lanes and passing angles have to be kind of fundamentally different. Yeah. Right? So I heard an interesting example from a coach in the last few months talking about Tom Brady's ability to hit those to hit those slot receivers. So one of the reasons he's so good with those guys is that he's got a got a direct access to them because he is so large he's so tall 
And it's just easier for him to get that real short, quick pass, which is in traffic, around people, above people, because of his stature. You can't expect a Mayfield or especially a, a Murray to have that kind of game. So it, 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 doesn't, it doesn't eliminate it, but it reduces one option, an important option. Brady makes a living off of it these days. Mm-hmm. And that's just kind of built an advantage of being taller. But, I mean, Kyler Murray, I mean, I don't know how much I watch him play college. I watched too much of him play in college. He's got athleticism to, to burn. I mean, my Yeah, he could play out. center field. Yeah. And, <laughs> I mean, people, people may not appreciate how athletic that position is, but, I mean, he is. If he weren't, if he weren't on the other team, he'd be a pleasure to watch. I mean, he's, he's, he's an athletic. He's a, he's a phenomenon. All right, guys, we are rolling into the last section of the day, and it's a section where we like to play a little over-under. It's Wharton Moneyball's Over Under. All right. So we are, of course, keeping score these days. We're charting these picks up and down. We're it's higher we're, pressure now. <laughs> we're taking it a little more seriously. We were report standings periodically. We wrapped up the 2018 season. We're rolling into the 2019 season. I got a handful of them. We've just been talking about Kyler Murray. He's running his pro day today. The over under on his 40 yard dash, the ever important, vital 40 yard dash in the NFL. Over-under set at 4.4 seconds. Mm. I just I didn't know this was coming up. I just told you how athletic he was. Yeah. I shouldn't have said that. I've given you an advantage. Shane. Well, I guess, give. I mean, I not. I don't have... Some scale, please. I don't have, yeah, I don't have a lot of information about, like, the 40-yard dash. I know 4.0 is pretty unusual, right? 4.0 is your... No, no, that's unheard of. 4.1 is... Uh, didn't we hear from Bradlow like that, that Bo Jackson was 4.1? No one runs 4.1. Okay. So what is 4.4? Who runs 4.4? Anybody? Yeah, lots of 4.4s. Okay. Um, uh, we, we can look at... Who, there was some defensive linemen. This is like people were wigging out because there was like a 260-pound defensive lineman who ran a 4-4 this right. year in Indy. All right, so I'm going. So you go first, and then I'll go after you. You can go first. You All right, I'll go, I'm going under. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to take the under as well. I'm going to go under, too. I've seen that guy run far too much. I'm scarred. I'm scarred no, from yeah. watching him. My own, only information is that a highly touted center fielder is a 30-foot per second. That's extremely fast. So Well, we that's, of course, I mean— we have to translate everything down now because right. you can do a lot more in 30 feet than you can in 40 yards. What about the draft pick he's going to go? We've just talked about we've just talked about his odds, which is going to change this one. The over-under here is one and a half. Do you believe the market? The yeah. over-under, one and a half, where he's going to go first between the first and second pick, over-under on where he goes. I'm going to take the under. I think uh, I think Arizona somehow this high, they, either they're going to be influenced by the hype or they are creating the hype, and uh, yeah, I think they're going to take him. Mm-hmm. Cade, uh, I'll you. go under as well. I just, I just, I just believe in these quarterbacks drifting up the board these days. No. Well, if it were, um, if it weren't for the market, I would have would have gone over. But when the market's going, we just heard minus four hundred. I can't go. I know. I don't you know enough go against the market. To go, I don't strong. know enough to That's go against strong. the market. That's so. By the way, Odell Beckham Jr. ran a four four three. He would have been over on that four four. Wow! But he's got a lot more mass to move around than Kyler Murray does. All right, let's go to Bryce Harper. We'd spend some time on him. Mm-hmm. Uh, number of home runs he's going to hit this year. Let me give you some context. In 05, he hit forty two. In sixteen, I mean fifteen, he hit forty two. Sixteen, he hit twenty four. Seventeen, twenty nine. Eighteen, thirty four. Matt sets the over under here at 34.5. Matt, Matt, Matt's a genius, by the way. That is a brilliantly set <laughs> over under, I have to say. I'm going to point that out. Can I go first? Yeah, please do, because I, I can follow you. I cannot. I, my heart is saying 30, is saying over, but my brain is saying under. Why? Because um, 34 is a lot of homers. And um, 
I just have to shrink to the not, to the grand mean. Okay, so it's not even about him. It's, it's just not about him. I think he's going to have a good season, but I think that I think that that's why I'm giving a lot of kudos to Matt with 34-5. I think that's a really good estimate. Okay, right. um, and then for me, that's that's like a, a toss up estimate. That's well set. So I should I probably should go with my heart, and then I can root you know root for the Phillies and having Bryce Harper, and then so I'm actually going to go with my heart. I'm always wrong wow. on my baseball picks. I'm going <laughs> to wow. go. I'm going to go over. Five seconds later, <laughs> I'm going against over. it. I'm going over and just praying forget for the, Bryce Hart. Forget the analytics part. I'm, of this go, I'm going over. I'll, I'll take a little less time with that. Citizens uh, <laughs> Bank Park is very small, and he hits very well there. All right. You, you stole my material. Matt slipped me this information. Citizen Bank Park, a sweet spot for lefties. It is, but it's not as great as you think. Okay, I'm going to go under just to add some interest because otherwise yeah. we're – last one, and we have to speed round here. Yep. With the seed that wins the NCAA tournament, 1.5. One seeds have won three of the last four years, 58% since 1985. 58% since 1985. Will a one seed win this year's tournament? One, yes or no? I'm going to take the over. I'm sorry, was higher, it my turn? A higher seed is going to win. I take a higher seed. I'm going to go higher seed also. I think this is kind of a shoddy yeah. a shoddy field this year. Yeah, exactly. I'm agreeing, Hottie. Higher. Okay, so we're, we don't have a lot of variance in this week's tournament, but we've got some data. We've got some data down. It'll increase. We'll gain decrease. on Eric. Right. <laughs> <laughs> that's not the way it works. All right, fellas, that has been another two hours here doing sports analytics on Wharton Moneyball. We're here every Wednesday morning, 8 a.m. to 10 a.m. This has been on behalf of Audie, Shane, Kate, and Derek Bradlow in the first half hour. Thanks for listening. Many thanks to Matty Datz. Our boss man, Daniel Bruno, sound engineer. Dion Simpkins, associate producer, pound of the bonbons in the back room. Appreciate the support, Dion. Thank you guys for listening. Come back and join us next week. Between now and then, enjoy your sports. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.